Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. And on this episode, the last before we take a little pause, we've decided to talk to two recent recipients of the Gavin Wallace Fellowship, a prestigious award which connects an institution with a writer. We speak to Maisie Chan, this year's Gavin Wallace Fellow, who's based at the National Centre for Children's Literature at Moat Bray in Dumfries. We talk about her plans and how COVID has affected those. But first of all, we speak with last year's fellow, the multi-talented writer Jenny Fagan. Recently announced as a member of the faculty at Strathclyde University's creative writing programme, Jenny has won numerous awards and was named as one of Granta's Best Young British Writers. We caught up just after she had very excitingly submitted the manuscript of her forthcoming novel, Luckin' Booth. So tell us, we would love to hear a wee bit more about your time as a Gavin Wallace Fellow. Now, what is that fellowship, Jenny? Could you tell us? So Gavin Wallace was a very lovely man who worked at Creative Scotland and was involved in literature and the arts. And he has left behind a fellowship to support artists or writers. Once a year, people get the opportunity to apply for a fellowship. And the fellowship is with a different organisation each time. So the last one that I did was at Summerhall and they won the the position to host the Gavin Wallace Fellow and I applied along with lots of other brilliant poets and I got the the space which was amazing. It supported me to write poetry for a year which is an almost unheard of thing to happen. I had free access to everywhere in Summerhall which is just the most amazing arts venue. Big huge building, 550 rooms and it used to be the training place for all the veterinary surgeons so it has all these amazing spaces where they used to dissect the horses or as I discovered really early on there was a bone library which I just thought was so amazing so whilst I was there I was writing a collection called the bone library and putting my poems up in gold around the building on the walls I was trying to kintsugi the building which is um, a Japanese belief where they believe that a thing isn't truly unique and whole and beautiful until it's been broken and then remade and you fill the cracks with gold. So I was trying to fill the cracks in Summerhall, the little unused spaces with poetry and gold. And then I found out at a meeting that there was a lot of bones still in the building. And this was a little bit of a secret. And somebody said that they were inferior bones. And I said, well, if they're inferior bones, I definitely want them. I had many happy hours rummaging around in the attic and these really ancient old boxes of bones. And I thought, how can I tie the old and the new together? And I've done some sculpture and other kind of more physical work in the past in the arts. And so I decided to engrave the bones with the poetry I was writing in the building. It was an extraordinary experience. And I was looking at the history of things like the Chinese oracle bones, where they would use divination to get answers from the oracle bones and um, early traditions of bone engraving. And initially I felt quite reverent because this was bones. And after a while I didn't. And that was great. (laughs) (laughs) because it really liberated what you were able to write on them and how you were able to use them. I engraved them and then I painted them black and then I, I filled the engravings with gold again. It was a wonderful experience. I'm really grateful to have been able to do it. Gosh, I was still thinking about that kind of almost attic full of bones. I mean, you do, one doesn't really just stop to dwell on where the bits after go. <laughs> do but you know what I mean? Yeah. After the life of that building. You know, and that was to train all of those vets. So these are, you know, I was working with ox bones or horse 
just bit, there was bits of turtle, things that were left over and completely discarded and not being used by anybody. So to be able to tie in art and the, the origins of science in the building and the importance of that. And I researched people like Mary Dick was the sister of the gentleman who actually opened up the Dick Vet. And she was just a formidable woman. And she really campaigned for so many things, one of which was that we could get free healthcare for animals, for pets for people who couldn't afford it. So she was responsible for things like that. They were both very political. They, they campaigned against, you know, the poor people being taxed to live in their houses. I think they had to go up to court for it. And they were just very well loved and part of a massive community, a massive European community in Edinburgh that brought in people to train from all over the world and uh, all kinds of extraordinary animals from, you know, the, the sun bears at the zoo in Edinburgh to million pound racehorses or somebody's pet cat. It was all happening in there. So the other thing I did was, as part of my, my big novel that I've been writing, it's based over 100 years, and I thought, I can't be based in this building and get access to all of these amazing stories behind the scenes and not use it. So now my 1930s part of my, my big 100-year novel is set in the Bone Library. The character works in the Bone Library in the 1930s, and he's actually building a mermaid from bone which he shouldn't be doing and he's drinking a lot with the postman and he shouldn't be doing that either Finds out that there's a room in the building it's registered to egypt and this is actually true it was in the cube building and it was registered to egypt because what they were doing in that room was not something that they could be doing under uk law so there are all kinds of interesting things in the history nefarious the doings Jenny, I mean, how much for, would you say for for your work, maybe for the fellowship, but then also for the novel that's coming soon? And we'll talk a wee bit more about that. But how much is is it serendipitous? Like, how much were you going into that fellowship knowing that Summerhall had a had a library that was full of bones? I mean, you know, how much can you plan? I suppose. Yeah, no, I I really don't like to plan. I mean, an idea will come that's just very very loose. I wanted to write a novel that was very ambitious, that was different from all the other novels I'd written before. I was very angry about what I was seeing in the world, you know, the rise of very publicly narcissistic or sociopathic men who are in positions of great power, people in, with great privilege who are in positions of great power who are so far out of touch with the impact of some of the policies and decisions that they are making on behalf of the world in general. I was absolutely furious at what I was seeing going on. And so really, I wanted to write a novel that was responding to patriarchy and responding to the structures of society themselves. I had this idea about the devil's daughter and that she was going to arrive in Edinburgh. She comes here from the islands. She rose here in, in a coffin that her father's built for her. Her father's dead, the devil. He's rammed in a crevice up on a cliff top overlooking the North Atlantic swells. Um, she's just hosted the waking for him. And she's left in the coffin he built for her and she rose for three days and three nights to get to the shore in Leith. She dresses in her mother's best dress at the docks and she strides up into town, up through Leith, past the boundary wall, past all the kids barefoot. You know, it's in 1910. The novel starts in 1910. And she stops eventually at the Tron and the roads are crossed below her and she spits and her spit is tinged pink and she turns to look to the right and she sees a flock of men in black flooding up North Bridge and it's 1,200 men of gods all arrived in Edinburgh in July 1910 to decide how to best impose Christianity on the world. They were there for the World Missionary Conference. And she says, I knew that God would have a message for me, but I did not know he would be so direct. And the speech crier calls out, evil walks among us and she steps forward and the novel begins.
And an event happens in 1910. She goes to work for the Minister of Culture in a, a traditional Edinburgh tenement, and she's on the first floor, and she's working for Mr. Udnam, who is the Minister of Culture, and uh, a very, very troubled and terrible man. And an event happens in the 1910 decade, in flat 1F1 1910, whereby Jessie McRae, the devil's daughter, curses the building for hundred years and all the tenants in it and the novel sees that curse through we go through the building we start in 1910 and 1f1 and then we're in 1920 and 2f2 1933 f3 all the way up for a hundred years and we follow all these different residents of this very old traditional edinburgh tenement and this curse travels through and is eventually concluded at the end of the book So that's all I knew initially. And then you have to go and become a detective and work out what the hell you're doing. And that takes years. And that's the the work. Jenny, see the way you spoke of that? Honestly, it's like goosebumps-a-rama. I can't wait for you to read it. I mean, I've been obsessed with this world for three and a half years now. I've been writing it out on my wall because it's so big. I've been having to draw it out on my bedroom walls from floor to ceiling. So it would have the whole tenement building drawn out, who each character was, what each decade was, what was going on culturally, what the links are between the characters, what the theme is of each decade. Each decade has a theme. So, for example, in the 1920s, we begin the 1920s with 460 Polish soldiers arrived in Edinburgh on the Toloa ship. It was needing towards the end of the war and they marched up Leith Walk with a polar bear called Baska Murmanski. This is all true. And Baska Murmanski was a member of the Polish regiment. She weighed 650 pounds. Now you can imagine Peggy down in Lee, all the kids running about. I've got the guys there having a wee nap and a wee pint, getting ready to go and see Hibs play. And they're all sitting out the windows and the pubs are open and everybody's watching these war-wearied, handsome men marching up with walk with this amazing polar bear. Now, that's not the main character. The main character in that, that decade is Flora, and she was she was an ex-soldier, and she was there. Um, she's on her way to go to a drag ball and she's remembering this happening and she meets the love of her life she calls him eternity she says um, she's travelled from the beginning of time to meet him and there he is and she meets him outside this bar and Baskin Murmansky's there she's saluting the kids the kids are all going wild but the point of Baskin Murmansky is that she represents love and she has this light in her eyes and these men from war have this light in their eyes and partly it's because the love that they were unable to give to their their, their wives or their children or their, their lovers when they were in wartime they were able to give to this animal and she's, you know, she's a dangerous dangerous creature, you know, she could kill any of them with ease but none of them are, are scared of her. So the point of the, the 1920s floor and Flora's story itself is all tied into this theme of the unbreakable bonds of true love and that's what Flora's muse is. So each decade had to work independently of every other decade. They all, they had to be kind of stories within themselves that fit into the whole. So each decade itself has got its own theme that it addresses and that character, their journey is travelling through that. And when I found Baskin Murmansky in particular, I thought I can't not have her in there. You know, there's, there was a brown bear brought, brought in called Watjek, I think in the other war. Again, I think by the Polish army. And that one's got a, a statue to it. Ah, a statue, ah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but nobody knows about Baska, so I just, I had to take her. And there was lots of stories like that in Edinburgh where, you know, I'm trying to write a great Edinburgh novel, a novel that's worthy of the city that is set in over a hundred year period. And I've been in love with Edinburgh since I moved here. I was three years old when I moved to Edinburgh. And, you know, there's not an inch of this city I don't know for better or worse. 
a lot of the stories that I tell, they're dark and they're about the underground and they're about the, the occult, they're about, you know, the very dual nature of this very ancient, ancient city. Nerve-wracking, it's going out this week and I've had it all to myself for three and a half years. Well, and, I wanted to ask you, like, this is a very cusp moment that we're catching you because I'm, I'm aware the book isn't out for, out for a wee bit, but we, we did want to get a wee chat in. But it's, that, must, that must be a very strange dissonance as a writer to have this thing that you've, as you say, you've been immersed in this this amazing world. And then it's about to meet our world. I was going to say the real world. They're no less real. It does, you know, and it's, you know, it was such an ambitious novel. I really didn't know if I would get there even up until the end, you know, and I pushed myself so hard. You know, I'll never be young enough or mad enough to write a book like this again. I really won't. It's a very strange bit where you know when it goes out into the world, it's not really yours anymore. You know, I've had this world completely to myself all that time. And it, and it's been really hard. It's been really hard going. It's broke me several times over. And in a, in a weird, weird incidence of art replicating life, I've been moving houses constantly in that time. And I've been knocking down walls in these old houses. Part of the the thing about Luckenbooth and, and the structures and the walls and what's in the walls and what's in the history of the building and what we all walk past Every time we go through these old tenement buildings, we're going over the footsteps of hundreds and hundreds of years of people, you know, just people just like us. It won't belong to me at that point. So I'm on another book now. I'm writing a, I'm writing two two different books at the moment. I'm writing my memoir, uh, Ages 0 to 16, and I'm working on a book uh, that's based on historically accurate information about witches in Scotland for Berlin. So the best way to deal with your book going out into the world is to be on your own personal journey with another book. And that's what you keep to yourself, really. I, well, Ali Smith always says it's like a book's like a bird, you know, that kind of once you've you've released it, it's and she makes the book like a wee flapping motion, you know, and it's sort of just out there. It's it's, others. it's, it's its own creature by that point, you know, really. It's, they go off and they have their own life. And, you know, you need to know that you've done as well by them as you can. And that's it. You can do no more. Then, then it belongs to the readers. It belongs to whoever picks it up at that point. That's the unique nature of literature in particular. It's the only medium that exists wholly within our heads and hearts and our memories. And we can never entirely tell another person what we've seen when we were in there. But when we've both been in the same world and then we meet up later on, we recognise that we've both been in it. It's an elusive medium. You've reminded me of something Rebecca Solnit said, actually. A book is a heart that beats in the chest of another. Because I know you were going to interview her before I this was, pesky... I really hope oh. I so again, because I've been loving reading her work. So that should be an amazing woman to chat with. Aye, one day. Before I let you go, Jenny, I did want to ask you just, you know, because you are someone who I whose work I, I admire enormously, but you've always got different, myriad different projects that are sort of, you know, book projects, poetry. Talk to me a bit about the poetry and how it sits in there with, say, a big sprawling project like Luck and Booth. How, what, what role does it creatively play, I suppose? Everything's a poem to me, really. You know, a novel is, is a poem just with a different identity. You know, really every single thing I do is poetry. I find that when I'm writing a novel, I have to strip it back. I can't allow it to be more poetic than it should be. You know, I need to make sure that the stories the stories are given the space and time that they should have. But I've been doing poetry since I was like seven years old. I've always done poetry. Everything comes from poetry for me. You know, if I walk down the street, I was in America for three weeks writing a poem about truth. It was just when Donald Trump had been elected as president and I arrived in New York and it had a real kind of uh, DC comics feel to what was going on you know 
people were like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm traveling across America at high velocity, writing about truth and talking to people about truth. And they were like, it's the last place you should come have a conversation about truth. And I was like, no, that's exactly why I should be having it there. And I was sitting in a wee cafe in New York before I left to go around loads of other places in the States. And this woman rollerbladed out of a cafe with um, two big bags of shopping in each hand, straight into ongoing traffic with upside down crosses all over her trousers. And that's poetry. That's that's poetry in motion, you know, literally. Poetry is a way of seeing the world. It's a way of experiencing the world. And it's a way of committing yourself to art. So that's what it does. It underpins everything I do. Oof, it is always such an enormous pleasure to speak with Jenny. And I don't know about you, but just hearing about Luckenbooth just sort of set my hair on fire and put the heart across me. I simply cannot wait to read it. It is out and will hit the shops in January. Maisie Chan is a children's author whose work includes the ladybird tales of superheroes and stories from around the world. We caught up with her to ask her about her experience so far as a Gavin Wallace fellow and how the books that were important to her growing up influenced her decision to become a writer. I just want to kick us off with going back in time a little bit to the books and libraries and what those meant to you as a, a little child growing up. Could you say a little bit about maybe some of the books that set you on the path you're on now as a as a children's writer? Yes. Yeah, so I didn't grow up in a house of books like a lot of writers, a lot of especially children's authors. You read their interviews and they'll say, oh, you know, I had lots of books at home and had this reading habit. And that just wasn't my house at all. So I grew up in a place called Seven. Oak, which is near the University of Birmingham. And it was a council house. And my mum and dad were foster parents. We had lots of children, but we didn't have lots of money and we didn't have lots of books at all. I mean, I'm trying to think of the books that I had at home. And I can remember a Ladybird book that was Cinderella. I might have had a couple of other books, but we didn't have bookshelves and they weren't full of books. Um, my mum used to take me to the library and also my primary school would take us to the library. So every week we would go to the library and it was this old redstone building. And I used to love going in there, like the counter was wooden and the smell of the books. And you would get four cardboard ticket holders and each book would have a little ticket. And I just loved holding, I don't know, there was something physical that I just loved about holding these four ticket holders and then going around the children's section looking for books to take home. So that was really good that the school were encouraging for us to join our local library. And I think it would be great if primary schools did that now. I know there's lots of libraries that have closed, unfortunately, but just having that link between school and library and that desire to read. And I think there's something special about choosing your own books and I remember just choosing them <laughs> I know it, it felt like a sweet shop I think I think libraries are like really special sweet shops like that you can just go in and pick stuff to read for free it's absolutely wild yes you don't need any money and it's just brilliant I remember those little cardboard ticket things that you're mentioning we had those in our local library as well the little sli- like thing on the inside of the book you got the little ticket to take away all very physical can you remember any of the books then that, that you would have borrowed or what were the kinds of books that you would have borrowed I'm so interested in the role that those books play for us when we're very young and leading on then to your role now as a writer I guess and writing books for the very young. So I loved Eric Carle's The Very Hungry Caterpillar and I think when I had kids it was like one of the first books I bought when I had a baby it was like just so colourful and the artwork's great but I just think that transformation element of the book 
is a theme which probably I had in my life, but also, you know, in my stories, there's this, I love stories about transformation and that you can make it. And I think it's just a simple picture book, but actually the message is quite a strong one. So The Very Hungry Caterpillar was one of my favourites. And also just because it's got lovely pictures of food as well. And there's counting in it and there's days of the week. So as a picture book, it's just, it really works. And then I remember loving The Haunted House. It was like a green book called The Haunted House. And it had pop-up bits and there was like these octopus tentacles coming out at one point. And that was a wonderful book. I was a bit obsessed with the Cinderella book that I had at home. I think because it was the only one that I had at home. <laughs> so I was constantly reading that. And looking back, I wanted to be Cinderella. She was this tall, blonde, thin woman who's like the opposite of me now. <laughs> and so when you think about me, you know, this I was quite a chubby Chinese girl, British Chinese girl. And then I'm seeing this beautiful, blonde, Barbie-like Cinderella. I even remember the dresses she was wearing. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be a princess and to live in a castle and to be a beautiful like her. I think looking back as an author now, it's like that influences how you see yourself because you think that's what a beautiful woman looks like. And you think that's what you need to do, that you need to get married. And I remember every week my mum would take me on the bus to the Birmingham ball ring market and we would pass a wedding shop and there'd be like these big wedding dresses that reminded me of the ball gowns in that Cinderella book. And so I think books do have a big influence on you because I remember thinking, oh, I want to get married. I want to be like Cinderella and have a you know print. And in some ways, it's nice to have stories, but in other ways, it can influence how you think about yourself and the world. So I think children now and parents now, that it's like the golden age of children's books in terms of like the representation, the characters that you can get and the types of stories you can get. But recently, I've been looking for picture books that have East Asian boys on the cover because two of my Chinese friends have just had babies and I couldn't find a single one that was written by a British author or that was published by a British publisher. I had to go online and the books were published in Asia or America. And I think, you know, it's 2020. Why can't I find a picture book that's got an East Asian boy on the cover? So I'm going to write some. <laughs> and is that a, a big motivating factor in your work, Maisie, to kind of address those dreadful omissions? Yes. So it was probably my main reason for becoming an author. I didn't know I was going to be a children's author until about five years ago. I just thought I was a writer. What happened was I did American studies as a degree. And when I went to America, I went to Berkeley and the campus is 40%. Well, it was then, this was 20 years ago, 40% Asian American. And it was such a massive influence in my life seeing so many Asian Americans, Chinese American, Japanese American, Korean American. There was courses on Asian American history, Asian American literature. They had a few Asian American films. And when I got back to Birmingham, it was like there was none of that. I didn't have anything to read. You know, there was no one that looked like me on TV. And so I made the decision to become a writer rather than be an academic because I was thinking of becoming an academic. I found my calling because I, I love writing stories. And I think through fiction, you can bring out the human elements. It doesn't matter what colour the protagonist is there's still those human emotions of happiness, sadness, regret. And I think fiction is a good way to 
show our humanity and you know we're all the same really yeah it was a big reason why I became an author and we're speaking to you sort of quite soon after the brilliant announcement that you've been named as the next Gavin Wallace fellow and you'll be working along with Moat Bray at the National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that place because I think a lot of it's quite a new centre so probably a lot of people might not know about their work but actually just specifically about what your role there will look like what do you plan to do with that fellowship? So I began the fellowship in May and I was so ecstatic that I was chosen. There's kind of two elements. So it's Peter Pan, Moatbray Trust, the house and the garden. It's the Neverland Discovery Garden. It's beautiful. I've not been, but I've been sent photographs. Then the centre is also the Scottish National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. So you've got these two elements there. So I was so happy to be chosen. I was, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. And so one of my roles as a fellow is to write stories that are inspired by the Neverland Discovery Garden. So J.M. Barry spent some time there as a youth And he said that he was inspired to write Peter Pan from his time there because he felt it was so magical. And um, one of my ideas was to write about gardens being a place of memory, but also regrowth. And in terms of what's been happening in the world with lots of death and illness that got people have been like taking up gardening. So I wanted to have the central focus and theme of the stories to be gardens as renewal and regrowth and rebirth and to be nurturing places and also one of the things I wanted to do in this year is to learn how to write picture books because I write novels and I write chapter books which is slightly for older children than picture books so they've got more words but I I find picture books really difficult so part of the residency and the fellowship is for my professional development to learn how to write picture books so I've been doing some picture book courses. It's fascinating isn't it picture books because as you say you have so few words to play with but I wonder could you share a little bit of insight about what you've learned so far? Because again, they're the kind of formative reading and story sharing experiences that we have. But I think they must be really tricky to get right. So generally, a picture book is around 500 words, which is not a lot to write. And each word counts. And sometimes the issue is when we're writing, like as a writer, you want to write, you want to describe everything, you want to write the words, you want to put dialogue. Or actually, you need to leave space for the illustrator who will, who will collaborate and bring their own ideas about how the picture book would work. I think that's one of the reasons why poets and songwriters do fairly well with picture books, because they're used to writing smaller texts than like novelists, and each word counts, so they're, they already have that kind of gift. I'm really rubbish at rhyming, where some people are natural, and I think poets and songwriters naturally are good at rhythm and rhyme. For myself, I find it quite easy to write thousands and thousands of words, but the picture book is, it's a different craft. So lots of projects on the go, Maisie. I, I wanted to ask you what, if you thought it would at all be the case that anything J.M. Barry related would sneak into your work. Do you think he'll find a way in there or any of the qualities in his work might inform yours or is that just not likely to happen? So one of the first things I did as fellow was to buy books on J.M. Barry because I didn't know that much about him. What an interesting character. <laughs> lots of dark stuff, very interesting pieces of biography about him there are similarities in that even though he's written about this fantastical world like Neverland and this boy that doesn't grow up actually there's lots of autobiographical stuff in his writing 
when you read these biographies about how he grew up, because um, he lost a brother quite early, and then apparently his mother maybe didn't give him the attention that he wanted or the love that he wanted. So his characters, they're looking for love and Peter Pan doesn't want to grow up and that's Barry. He doesn't really want to grow up. And that's why he was so taken with children, like the Llewellyn Davis boys, but not just them, like lots of other children he had like strong bonds with and he didn't get on that well with grown-ups. And I think that all stems from his childhood. So I think when I look at my own work, there's a lot of influence from my background growing up in foster care and then being adopted and being in a working class environment and I think rejection issues since I've read quite a lot about Jane Barry I think some of those things I can see in my own work already but I do want to write more fantastical things so that yeah one of my goals is also to write a bit more about flying boys or flying girls and fantastical places. Yes, yeah, so one of my goals is to change how I write a little bit because I, I usually write contemporary realist stuff. And so, I, yeah, I would like to write more like Barry, more crazy stuff. Brilliant. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about, more about um, stories from around the world and just how international stories um, and how they influence or inspire your work. Yes, yeah, so um, Stories from Around the World came about through Scholastic, who asked me to rewrite some famous fairy tales. So I got to pick most of them myself, and then they suggested a couple of well-known ones. And it was a really interesting project because I hadn't really re rewritten fairy tales before. So first of all, you have to find original source material. And one of the issues with that was that a lot of the people that had written down these fairy tales, which were usually oral tales, were sort of white people in colonial times. And, you know, they might have sat around the campfire with a native person and then written down in English this indigenous person's story. So there was this issue there because then the way that they've written them sometimes was a bit racist or out of date. And sometimes the stories just didn't make sense. So it was trying to when I had to rewrite them, trying to find the story, first of all, what's the structure and what is the essence or theme of this story? And then after that, I had to be mindful about who was telling the story and what world lens uh, and what privileges they had with retelling that story. And it was quite hard to find original material, you know, from the 1800s that I could use that was from someone that was native to that land. So I, I tried to make them more modern and. There was lots of marriage and lots of that sort of stuff. And I tried to make it a bit more modern. So sometimes I didn't have the princess marrying the prince. I would just have them be best friends instead of getting married. Because <laughs> then I remembered my own childhood thinking about that Cinderella book, thinking, oh, princesses have to marry princes. So I wanted to kind of change that in some of the stories and just have them as friends, which I think, you know, is a bit more modern. And tell us about um, Amy Wants a Pet, your reading book. Could you say, tell us, who's Amy and why does she want a pet? So Amy's a little Chinese girl and the book opens with her outside the pet store and she wants a pet and her parents are like, well, you're going to look after it. Who's going to clean it? Who's going to feed it? And then one day she's in the park and she finds a big, strange looking egg and she takes it home and inside there's a creature. So she feeds it and loves it, but it gets massive. So she has to take it back to its home. <laughs> So it's fun to write. It's for sort of five to six year olds. And 
the illustrations are really nice. So yeah, it was really, really nice project to do. If You Want to Pit is published at the end of this month. Many thanks to Maisie for chatting with us and we wish her all the absolute best for her fellowship. It sounds like Jenny had a glorious time at Summerhall and we hope that Maisie does too when she finally makes it to Mootbray. And that's it for this episode. We're going on a brief little holiday, but we'll be back soon. If you're looking for something to watch or listen to while we're away, then do tune in to the absolutely fantastic programme of events which our friends at the Edinburgh International Book Festival are offering from the 15th to the 31st of August. It's all absolutely free. Check out their programme at edbookfest.co.uk. Thank you so much to Jenny Fagan. Thank you so much to Maisie Chan. And thank you so much to you for tuning in. If it's your first time, if it's not your first time, we've loved having you along for the journey throughout these funny times in this funny weather. Uh, So thank you. We'll look forward to being back with you soon. In the meanwhile, take good care. Bye-bye for now.